Okay, we need to get started here. Can we start? <laughs> I know everybody's catching up. We need more catching up time with all this COVID mess, don't we? Uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Then we're going to do a song and then we're going to go into the teaching. Cheryl is not here, so we'll see how challenging you can be on questions. <laughs> She's in Colorado this week. So let us begin in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are gathered here together, ask you to open our hearts to learn and let your anointing come and flow as you teach us uh, the ways, your ways, Lord, and the ways of your church. And we pray together as Christ taught us, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, oh, yes, come in, come in, come in. We're going to do a song. And this is a song I like. I haven't done it in a long time. Um, and we, this is a song, it's, in the, it's actually in the Breaking Bread book, and we're starting to do it in church sometimes. So I thought I would do it tonight, because Sarah's not here to serenade us. So we'll start with this one. With one voice the angels sing Songs that make creation dream Prophets hear and call us to Praise the Spirit and in truth Word of God enthroned Dwell in us forevermore Love has come to show the way Hallelujah Peace be with us Love has come to show the way Brother Yahweh Elohim, voice of thunder, spirit wind, breathe on me your very light. Grace will make the darkness bright. Word of God enthroned, dwell in us forevermore. Love has come to show the way. Hallelujah, peace be with us. Love has come to show the way. God of covenant divine, manifested in God's mind, beyond sorrow, beyond fear. Evil hunger, earth and fear. Word of God enthroned, dwell in us forevermore. Love has come to show the way. Hallelujah, peace be with us. Love has come to show the way. Paper of the sacrifice, manifest in Jesus Christ, 
born to die and wake the dead as we hunger keep us fed word of god and throne dwell in us forevermore love has come to show the way hallelujah peace be with us love has come to show the way now salvation has come in the new Jerusalem. Dancers dance and singers roar, proclaiming Jesus Christ is born. Word of God in bones, dwell in us forevermore. Love has come to show the way. Hallelujah, peace be with us. Love has come to show the way. Lord of God and throne, dwell in us forevermore. Love has come to show the way. Hallelujah, peace be with us. Love has come to show the way. <laughs> no, that's not necessary, but that's a fun song. And I'm glad we'll be doing that in church. And it kind of loosely relates to what we're going to be talking about tonight, which is the church. And I did discover that we actually somehow got a week behind on our schedule. It kind of got all messed up. We started late and there were vacation days and all. Um, so I'm going to try to cover the history of the church really from... Um, from Christ up into the Second Vatican Council. So I'm going to shoot through a lot of material. But the real function is, is not so much to cover the history of the church so much as to explain how the faith of the church is decided. How do we know what the faith of the church is? And of course, one of the things that we have in our current, uh, in our current world is that there are so many different splinters of Christianity, splinters of the faith. How did those come about? How do they relate to each other? What's the role of, the, of Catholicism uh, in the, the broader picture of Christianity? And uh, so we're going to look at this, of course, the way I typically look at things from a historical perspective. But I think we can see how this develops and how there, it really is a continuity of faith, uh, even from the time of Christ. So, as Jesus is preparing to leave the world, he's preparing to, to ascend into heaven, and he tells the apostles that this is going to be a good thing, that he's going to go to heaven, because when he ascends to the Father, the Holy Spirit will come and lead them into all truth. This is Christ's plan. God became man to not only effect for us salvation, but also to teach us the ways of God and to establish God's kingdom on earth, which is the church. 
The church is the government of God on earth. Just like in the Old Testament, there was a king and there were king, the kingdom of Israel. In the New Testament, in the New Testament, there is the kingdom of God, which is the church. And the church guides mankind by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit into the future, up into the end of time. And of course, the Holy Spirit descends on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is that 50 days after Easter, and it's always a wonderful celebration. We talk about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descends and begins to empower the apostles to proclaim the gospel, to understand what Jesus was teaching them because they never got it the whole time they were with Jesus. They were always confused as to who Jesus was and what he was about, what he was doing. So Peter stands up, he, he preaches, he performs miracles. 5,000 people are added to the church on the day of Pentecost. And the beginning and their understanding of Christianity was that this wasn't what we would call an eschatological ministry. It's the last, eschatological meaning the last things, the last days. Je Jesus has given on this the Holy Spirit, but he is coined, he's coming back. He's coming back right away to establish the kingdom of Israel. This is always what they expected, right? Jesus is going to be the new king of Israel. And they don't understand that this is a, the church is supposed to last for thousands of years. They expect Jesus to return right away. And uh, in fact, even in the Paul's letters, he writes about this, that he intends, he expects to be alive when Jesus returns. Well, that was 2,000 years ago. But that was a misunderstanding that they had. But nonetheless, the church was given the Holy Spirit to lead them into truth and to guide them unto the end of time. Now, what we see immediately in the Acts of the Apostles is that Peter, right off the bat, becomes the spokesperson of the Apostles. He, and that's a very key term. We're going to come, we're going to visit that term later. The spokesperson of the Apostles. So when it comes time to proclaim the church to the world, Peter is the one who stands up and does it. He has that role. And so, um, and he not only is he the spokesperson to the apostles on Pentecost, he becomes the, the apostle who first spreads the gospel to the Gentiles through a uh, miraculous vision he has taken to uh, Cornelius, who is a Roman soldier, he, and Cornelius and his whole family become Christians, and they are baptized, and he's the first non-Jewish believer. Now, this is interesting because Peter, who's the spokesperson of the apostles, when the word gets out that he has gone and baptized someone who was not Jewish, the church intends to stone him to death. That's their plan. Peter, you know, went to the house of a non-Jew, and so therefore we'll have to stone him to death. That's the plan. So he comes back and he tells the story about the miraculous way in which this whole thing happened. And they say, okay, well, I guess the Holy Spirit is, is in this, and so we'll, we'll allow this. You know, we'll allow to have uh, a Gentile become a, uh, to become a Christian. But it was still a very, very limited understanding. Now, another key individual in the first century is St. Paul, wrote all the letters of St. Paul, majority of our New Testament. He was a persecutor of the church. He has a dramatic, miraculous conversion after a period of time living as a hermit in Syria. He then goes and he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, all of this is happening in what we call the apostolic P. 
period, the first century of the church. Other key figures in this period are James and Jude, who are the half-brothers of Jesus. Um, tradition tells us they were, they were sons of Joseph before um, he had brought Mary into his life. And um, so with these half-brothers who grew up with Jesus, they became key figures in the church as well. But the, the key question in the first century, can non-Jews be Christians? The word Christian is really, just really means a follower of the Messiah. Can you follow the Messiah if you're not born a Jew or converted to a Jew? To a Jew? This was a major question for the church, and they argued about this a great deal. So how do you lead a faith when there are different opinions out there? How do you guide the faith when people are arguing as to what the faith means? So there in the very first century in the apostolic period, they decided to have what we call a church council. So they invited all the leaders of the church, which at this point is principally the apostles and the other leaders of the church to come to Jerusalem to discuss this issue of can someone who is not a Jew be a Christian. And they discuss it among themselves. And of course, Peter, who is the spokesperson of the apostles, he stands up and he begins, recounts the story of his conversion of Cornelius, the first Gentile Christian, who was the Roman soldier that miraculously was, was guided to Peter to, um, to be baptized, to receive the Holy Spirit, and to be a Christian. And James is there, James the brother of the Lord is there, and they decide in, in council, all the apostles and the leaders of the church there, they say, this is what the Holy Spirit wants. In fact, St. James's uh, exact words were, it is good to the, for the Holy Spirit and to me, or it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to me that this is the path we should take. The Gentiles can become uh, can become Christians. They do not have to be circumcised. All they need to do is be baptized and they need to care for the poor and abstain from uh, meat that has been sacrificed to idols, not to eat uh, food that was sacrificed to pagan idols. So this is the principle. If there's a question about what Christians believe, you get the leaders of the church, churches together, you pray about it, you discuss it, and you come to, what, to a consensus. It's not so much a democratic thing where they all take a vote, but they all pray and they come to a consensus about it, which doesn't mean that some people don't disagree. And, and of course, they're always, every time you get together, people are going to want to have their own opinions and, and go on. But the church moves forward in what we call consensus. Well, the apostles happened to be wrong about one thing. Jesus did not come back during their lifetime. So when we go into the second century, there needs to be the ability to establish a church that's going to last for a while. In the first century, the church was very much about getting the word out, getting people involved in the community, because Jesus is coming right back. By the second century, they're figuring out we had better build something that's going to last. 
Now, in the first century, the church is guided by the apostles. In the second century, it's guided by the people we call the apostolic fathers. Now, the reason we call them that is that these are Christian men who were trained by the apostles themselves. And we hear some of their names in the New Testament because St. Paul talks about the people that, he, that uh, are traveling with him, you know, his, the people that he's training um, to carry on his work after he is gone. Men like Clement, uh, Barnabas, Polycarp. Um, there's a delightful book in the, uh, called the Didache, which really is the uh, Greek is the teaching of the 12 apostles. Of the 12 apostles. And so it's, it's like a, a Christian primer written, written in the early second century, um, reflecting what the apostles taught. And there's some other uh, books that are that way. In fact, our apostles' creed uh, is very much that way. It actually reflects the teachings of the apostles because here in the second century, they're trying to collect what the apostles taught and say, this is the teaching of the church. This is what was handed from Christ to the apostles the apostles to us and we're now codifying it into so that we can carry this on into the other centuries and some of these christian leaders like justin martyr and irenaeus ignatius of antioch who is an amazing character ignatius is um, there, there's a point in the gospels where jesus takes a little child and sets him on his lap and says you know if to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven you have to become a child like this this little kid well, that little kid, his name was Ignatius. He was the, uh, and he became, he, you know, he grew up with the apostles. He became the bishop of Antioch. Uh, he, interestingly enough, he's the first Christian writer to use the word Catholic to refer to the church. Um, but he's an amazing character. He was, um, he was martyred for the faith and transported from Antioch to Rome to be martyred. And uh, as he's traveling to be martyred, he's writing letters to the, to the churches that he's ministering in. And we have six of those letters. We have these letters of Ignatius of Antioch. Um, so many of these people wrote, the, wrote down stuff to explain how the church was supposed to work in this second century that we are beginning to try to establish a faith that's going to be around for a while because Jesus is not coming back tomorrow. Very, very important period in the, in the church. Um, and then by the third century, we have what are called the Antonicene Pauses, the fathers before the, uh, the Council of Nicaea. And they're dealing with a whole different question. They're not dealing so much with how to create a church that will last, but how to deal with uh, cultural influences in the church. See, when the church was, you know, just um, was all Jewish, and living in Jerusalem, it was very monocultural. Everything came out of one culture. But as it began to spread around the world, you started having influences from Persian culture, from um, Greek culture. And these influences began to taint Christianity to some extent. And the church had to decide how to deal with these influences. Two key influences from the Persian culture was what we call Gnosticism. Gnosticism is, is probably one of the original church heresies, and that basically says that there are two gods. There's the good God and there's the bad God. In the Bible, we talk about God and the devil. You know, they treated the devil as if he were the bad God. 
And everything having to do with earth is the bad stuff. Everything having to do with spirit is the good stuff. So spirit and God are good, the devil and earth are bad. And that's very contrary to Christian teaching. We talked about that from the, uh, we talked in the very first time, everything God created was good. God created the world and said it's all good. God became flesh. God became, so the flesh is not bad because God shares in our flesh. He had a body like ours. And so the, uh, the church had to deal with this uh, heresy of Gnosticism, this Persian influence. The influence from the Greek side had to do with Jesus not being fully God, but like in the, in the Greek concept of a demigod. You know, like in the Greek world, there were lots of demigods. Uh, Theseus, Hercules, many others were demigods where, because Zeus played around a lot, right? Zeus had a lot of human girlfriends. And so you had these characters who were half God, half man. They were the son of Zeus and they were the son of some woman. And so there's this influence in the church that Jesus is not fully God. He's just half God. Now, again, how does the church deal with these kinds of problems, these kinds of questions about what is the faith? You have a council. You gather all the Christian leaders from around the world. So at this point, they're now called bishops. Actually, they were called bishops in the first century too, but the apostles um, had such greater authority. You, mostly you hear about the apostles rather than the bishops who are more like pastors of local parishes. Um, so you get the, the bishops in from all over Christianity, which is now spread throughout the Mediterranean world. So you gather all the bishops together and um, they gathered together for the first time since Jerusalem in Nicaea, which is right outside Constantinople. Why there? Constantine was the emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire, and he became a Christian. And now he put an end to the persecution of Christians. And since he put an end to the persecution of Christians, Christians can now get together from around the world. It's the first chance they actually had to come together and form a council in 300 years. So that's what they do. They come together in Nicaea and they discuss this issue. Is Jesus fully God or is he a demigod? And what comes out of the council of Nicaea, of course, is what we call the Nicene Creed. We say it every Sunday. And when you look at the Nicene Creed, you can see right away that it's dealing with this issue of, is Jesus fully God? It's, it's Trinitarian, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, right? But God the Father gets one line. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. All right. <laughs> he gets one line because he's, he's not the issue. It, the issue is, who is Jesus? So then it begins... And in one Lord Jesus Christ, only begotten, Son of God. Of, of, in, in, okay, there, there are several different versions of the Nicene Creed, and I've unfortunately copied all of them down. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, very God from very God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, which means having the same substance, which is a Greek philosophical term, 
but having the same substance as God the Father. He is God. He is made of the same stuff as God. He has the same substance as God. So the Nicene Creed is the bishops from all over the world coming together in council to, to deal with this issue of is Jesus God or is Jesus demigod? And the faith begets, it's proclaimed, Jesus is fully God. And we recite that creed from 325 AD every single Sunday when we come together in Mass. So you're starting to get the, the idea of the continuity of the, of the faith, and it's being defined in council. Now, a little, actually there were 10 what we call ecumenical councils and another 12 councils of the Catholic Church. We'll talk about those. But this concept of coming together in council to decide issues continues throughout the history of the church. Uh, a later council, which was the Council of Ephesus, dealt with a similar issue about the nature of Jesus. And that was, was Jesus God or was Jesus just the Christ? Was he just the Messiah? And the reason I bring that up, because it's very interesting how the church defined that. Rather than having a new creed, they left, they kept the, the guys in creed. They gave Mary a title. Actually, she already had this title, but they, re, but they in, reinforced this title. And they said, Mary is not the mother of Christ. She is the mother of God. The word they used was actually theotokos, which is a Greek word, which means Mary bore God in her womb. She carried God in her womb. In the, um, and it's usually translated in the English world as mother of God. This has always confused people. When I was a Protestant, this really confused me. How can you say Mary's the mother of God? God has existed, you know, from the beginning, you know, from before time. Before there was time and space, there was God. How can Mary be God's mother? Well, it has to do with Jesus. Jesus was fully God from the moment of his conception. Therefore, Mary is the one who bore God in her womb. That's what, though again, in, in English, we call that, we call her the mother of God. So this model of getting together the churches from all over the world to decide questions about the faith continues through the 10th century. Why did it stop? Well, actually it didn't stop completely, but it stopped um, worldwide for a number of reasons. And one of those reasons was the fall of Rome. It is impossible to overstate the impact of the fall of Rome. Rome was the capital of the world for a thousand years. That's a long time. For as long as anybody could remember, Rome governed the world. And Rome took care of everything. All roads lead to Rome, right? So Rome took care of all the roads. That's how people could travel around. That's how there could be commerce. Rome printed the, minted the money. Rome took care of all the schools. Rome took care of all the hospitals. Rome had the army and the law enforcement. Everything centered on Rome. When Rome fell, the first sack of Rome was in the year 410. When Rome fell, all of that stops. 
There's no more government. There's no more law enforcement. There's no more schools. There are no more hospitals. There are no more roads. Everything ended. That's why we call this the Dark Ages. Because within a generation, people can't read and write. There's no more money. There's no more education. There are no more hospitals. Everyone lives as a subsistence farmer just trying to survive. This created a problem between Rome and what we would call Western Europe and the Eastern Empire. Constantinople, the capital of the Eastern Empire, Eastern Roman Empire, they continued to last for several hundred more years. So in Constantinople and in Alexandria and Egypt, these were the centers of learning. These were the centers of, of education. These were much more sophisticated than Rome, which had completely collapsed. And so there was a very, there was, communication was impossible. In the Eastern Empire, they spoke Greek. You couldn't find anyone in Rome who knew how to speak Greek because they, uh, there were no schools. There's no education. They spoke Latin, which happened to be the language of the slaves. Latin was the vulgar language. That's why when uh, the, the Bible was translated into Latin from Greek, it was referred to as the vulgar Bible. We call it the Vulgate because Latin was the vulgar language. It was the language of the slaves, but that's the only language left in Rome because they had, it had, it collapsed. Rome was actually attacked three times, was sacked three times. There's nobody there to defend it. There are no walls. There's no government. The only institution left that can do anything to help save the people from starvation is the church. So the church takes over the role of civil government as well as spiritual guidance. This is how the Roman Catholic Church became both a, um, you know, a, a civil government and a spiritual government because there was no civil government. So the church gathers the people, organizes the people, they rebuild the walls, and they begin to try to form some, you know, some laws and some governance in the city of Rome and the surrounding territories. No sooner do they start this project, guess who shows up? Attila the Hun. Not your favorite next door neighbor. So Attila the Hun shows up in Rome. The walls are, you know, are mostly broken down. There's no government there. There's no military. And so it's all left up to the church to defend the city of Rome. So how does the church defend the city of Rome? Well, it was actually Pope Leo, who we now refer to as Pope Leo the Great. He goes out with his force, which is a deacon. So he and a deacon walk out into the field of battle to meet Attila the Hun. This is a true story. So... Attila the Hun sees the, the Pope, he's dressed, you know, like a Pope, and his, his deacon, he's coming out, he's carrying a shepherd's staff, like Popes do, and he comes out to meet Attila the Hun, and they said, we want to talk. Well, Attila the Hun says, you can have whatever you want, because, un, because numerous eyewitnesses who are there, we don't have a record of the conversation, but a number of eyewitnesses record that not only were Pope Leo 
and his deacon walking out to meet Attila the Hun, but alongside them was this giant angel armed for battle. St. Michael the Archangel shows up and goes out with Pope Leo to meet with Attila the Hun, and Attila the Hun gives in and, send, and his army retreats and goes away. It's an amazing story. It's a great story. But this is how the church begins to, or the Roman Catholic Church begins to have both civil and religious authority. And, and that extends really up to this day. Although at this point, all, the only civil authority that the church has is over Vatican City, which is just like four, five or six square blocks. I mean, it's not a very big place. But nonetheless, this is how this begins. There was no civil authority. And in order to keep the people from starving, the church fills in that role. Well, with language barriers breaking down, with Rome having really nothing going for it at all, you've got a great center of learning in Alexandria. This is, of course, before uh, Alexandria fell to Islam, so you still have the Library of Alexandria and the great center of learning there. Constantinople is the head of the Eastern Empire. They are doing very well. And so you, this, there begins to come, the church begins to divide up really along um, lines of language and culture. And there's also some, uh, there's some pride, you know, the Alexandrians think we're the smartest people. We, we've got the, we got the universities, we're the smartest people. We should be in charge. And of course, in the constant, no, we've got the emperor, we should be in charge. And so things begin to, um, to break apart. So by 500 AD, Egypt breaks, uh, begins, well, they stop coming to councils. The Egyptian church, the Coptic church stops coming to councils. Um, and then by 1054, the uh, church in Constantinople, um, they reject the Catholic, they reject the Bishop of Rome. Over this, in, over this incident, actually, um, again, you have a, um, you've got a question about the faith, and it always has to do with the nature of Jesus, right? Does G, is Jesus in, was Jesus fully part of the Trinity, or can you how how or can you divide the Trinity up? And so, unable to meet in full council because nobody in Rome speaks Greek, they don't speak Coptic. You can't get the people to come together again. Um, in the Catholic Church, they meet with all the Latin-speaking bishops. They they discuss this issue and they say, okay. To correct this, we're going to add um, one word, one word to the Nicene Creed, that work in filioque. They add the word filioque, which means and the son in English. Three words in English, one word in Greek. And, or excuse me, in Latin. And the Bishop of Rome changed the council, the creed from the Council of Nicaea without conferring with all the Greek and Coptic bishops? What is this? He can't do that. And so that's when the, uh, the Church of Constantinople, the Greek church, they separated from the Latin-speaking church, and it got to be a mess. They were excommunicating each other. There were lots of, you know, there were some fights, you know, because there always are over these sorts of things. And... Um, 
And that was the great division of the church between East and West, between Latin and Greek. And like I say, the, and the Coptic church in Egypt, they had already kind of gone off their own way. But also at this time, you have the influence of Islam. Islam is attacking uh, the Coptic church there. Egypt had fallen to Islam in 70 in 700 um, AD. The uh, Constantinople held out for a long time. I think it's around 1400 that Constantinople, 1443, Constantinople falls to Islam. And so now all of the Eastern churches are separated, not, not only separated from the Roman church, but they're also under the control of Islam. Islam tried to take Europe. In fact, they did make a lot of inroads into Spain for about 150 years. Uh, the Moors controlled southern Spain. Uh, they were eventually repelled by the Crusades. Remember, they got the European Christians together, formed Crusades to drive out Islam. Europe was under attack at the Battle of Lepanto, and the Pope said, everybody pray rosaries, but add this prayer. He added a prayer to the, to, the, to, the, to the Hail Mary, the Hail Mary full of grace, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. That's the rosary, that's the Hail Mary. But um, I forget the Pope's name, said, um, because the, uh, the Christian coalition was, was hopelessly outnumbered at the Battle of Lepanto, which was a naval battle. And they said, everybody pray a rosary, but add this prayer. Holy Mother, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Well, you know, when you realize that that prayer was invented for an army that's hopelessly outnumbered going into battle, trying to save Europe from being overrun by the Muslims, it kind of takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? But that's where that prayer comes from. And so then, of course, miraculously, the Christians won the Battle of Lepanto. Um, Italy was not conquered by, the, by Islam. And, of course, that prayer has been a part of our uh, Catholic life ever since. But with the great disarray in the world, some, some of which is linguistic, some of which is cultural, some of which is because of the influence of Islam, particularly in, in, uh, in Africa and in the East, we still have to deal with questions of doctrine. When someone raises a question, how do you deal with it? You have a church council. And so church councils continue to be hold in Europe, in the Latin church, in the Roman church. And now you bring together the bishops from all the, the, the Catholic church together, all the European churches, and they call this the magisterium. You'll hear this word, the magisterium. These are the bishops who come together when there's a, a major question about the faith to decide what is the faith. Now, this is interesting because they cannot make anything up. They cannot decide, well, okay, we've heard these two sides and this is what we're going to, we're going to decide, we want to go, we're going to do it this way. They're not allowed to do that. The Catholic faith means, Catholic, of course, means universal, but what that means is not just all over the world, but it means also means all over time. So they have to decide what has the church always believed from the time of Christ through the apostles, through the apostolic fathers, through the Nicene fathers, through you know all of the 
all of Christianity has believed consistently from the days of Christ. And that's what they have to determine. And then that's what they publish. This is what we've always believed. So they can't come up with any new beliefs, but what they do is they define existing beliefs. They define what we've always believed. Like Mary, Mother of God, defined in the Council of Ephesus, it wasn't like something new they came up with. The church had always believed that Jesus had been fully God from the moment of his conception. Of his conception. And so, but they just defined it. And they defined it kind of in a backwards way by saying Mary, you know, was the bearer of God. He, she, Mary bore God in her womb. So this is what the councils do. This is how the church moves forward. Nothing new, but as the church continues to spread in different cultures and different languages, there are always issues that the church faces. How does the church face these issues? One of the big issues, of course, was the Reformation. Again, how does the church why, how does the church wind up in trouble the church winds up in trouble because of language and culture a man by the name of martin luther decided to unite the german language there was no german language before martin luther there were lots of little um, there was no germany it was you know it was, it was very tribal you had lots of little provinces everybody in each, in each province they had their own dialects their own language martin luther says, I think we ought to have one language for all Germans, all Germans, you know. So he, he kind of created the German language using elements from all these little local dialects. He put all of, he cre upon the creation of his language, he makes a Bible. And suddenly you have people in Germany who are reading the Bible in German for the first time, and making decisions about, about you know, what is it, they're making personal decisions about faith. So I read this in the Bible, so this is, this is how I understand Christianity. This is what I understand Christianity is. And this becomes an issue. And how does the church deal with this issue? They have a church council. It's called the Council of Trent. They meet the, all the bishops from the Catholic churches, German bishops as well as French and English, and they all come together at the Council of Trent Martin Luther's raised a lot of questions. What does the church, what has the church always believed? Now, one of the questions that Martin Luther raised, of course, if, if you've read any kind of Reformation history, you know, was, is the concept of salvation by faith alone. Salvation by faith alone. In fact, interestingly, he wrote into his Bible, he added the word solo, fide solo, faith alone where the Bible says the righteous will live by faith, he said by faith alone. The church deals with this issue and says, you're absolutely right, Martin Luther. We are saved by faith. We're not saved by works. You were saved by what we by, by the one, not so much what we believe, but the one in whom we believe and how he guides our lives. So it's not just that it's, it's not a mental ascent, but it's, it's a faith in which we entrust ourselves to God and yes, our lives change. But it is, we can't make ourselves good enough to be Christians. So 
the church, the Catholic Church actually agrees with Martin Luther on that point. But where they disagreed with Martin Luther was the issue of um, sola scriptura. Is our entire faith contained in the Bible? And the church says no, because the faith has always progressed from age to age to age through the decisions made in church councils. This is what the church calls the tradition. So when church, when we talk about church tradition, it's not all that we like, you know, it's, it's, we like to do things this way. No, when talking about tradition, we're talking about decisions made by bishops in church councils. Things that have been taught to us by the apostles, by the apostolic fathers, by the church fathers, the Nicene fathers. There is a body of literature that is passed from one hand to the other. The apostles train the apostolic fathers, the apostolic fathers train the Nicene fathers. You begin to see that this, there's a continuity in the faith. And the continuity is defined in church councils. So there were some places where the Catholic Church at the Council of Trent say, we agree with what Martin Luther is saying. There are some places where they said, no, Martin Luther, you're taking it too far. Um, and of course, the Protestant Reformation happened. And again, it got ugly. There were battles, there were fights, there were wars. It, it got ugly because these things always do. And once it gets ugly, it's hard to fix. A couple of other councils to um, talk about is the first and second Vatican Council. And at this point, we're saying there are 22 councils altogether in the history of the church, 22. The first Vatican Council um, met to deal with the issue of the fact that Christianity is getting really big. It's all over the world. It's very difficult to get people together in council, and we, it's very difficult just to deal with the languages. We're bringing Africans in, we bring in, you know, the, the Catholic Church, because the Catholic Church maintained its apostolic evangelistic zeal, carrying the gospel um, into Africa and, and China and uh, throughout uh, Polynesia and all over the world. The, the, the Catholic Church has been spreading. The Eastern churches remained very cohesive. That's why they're not ca called universal church or Catholic church. They're, you know, there's the Greek Orthodox Church. There's the Russian Orthodox Church. There's the Assyriac uh, Orthodox Church. They're very, very nationalistic and cohesive, whereas the Catholic Church wanted to spread the gospel around the world, but that created a problem. How do you get them all? How do you get all the bishops together? How do you do this? So in the first Vatican Council, they came up with a solution. And of course, the solution actually arose from a problem, um, which I won't go into the whole problem now because I don't want to take too long. But the solution came to be this. The Pope has the right to question, write letters to all the bishops. When there's a problem, there's a question in the church, what do we believe? So he writes to all the, all the churches and say, what do we believe about this? And, and one of the issues that um, 
came up with this was the definition of the immaculate conception of Mary. Because some people began to say Mary could not be immaculately conceived. In fact, Thomas Aquinas was one of these people. Said Mary could not have been miraculously immaculately conceived, that is conceived without sin, the taint of original sin, because then she did not need her, her son to die for her salvation. So the Pope was, anyway, at the council, first count Vatican Council, what the, what the church decided was that the Pope can query all the bishops, collect all their information, and then act as the spokesperson of the Holy Spirit. He can say, I've spoken, to, I've written to every bishop in the church. I have collected their information. This is what everyone is saying. This is what the church has always believed. And on the matter of the Immaculate Conception, he was able to say that Mary was immaculately conceived by the grace of Christ crucified because Jesus is the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world, right? He, he died in time from our perspective, but from, our, but from God's perspective, his sacrifice covers all sins for all time. So she is still saved by her son and immaculately conceived by a special grace given to her. But this came out, this is like a, a pretty, you know, significant theological description of this issue. But rather than being able to get all the bishops from all over the world together, which had become very cumbersome, what he, what the, Holy Father did was he wrote to all the bishops, he collected the information, he acts just as Peter did, as the spokesperson of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't get to, this is what we, it's, this doctrine is typically called the infallibility of the Pope. I tell you the Catholic Church needs a good PR man because they name everything backwards. It doesn't mean the, church, the Pope is infallible. It means the Pope can act as the spokesperson of the Holy Spirit, who is infallible. It's the infallibility of the Holy Spirit. The Pope is just the spokesperson. After he collects what the Holy Spirit has spoken through all the churches around the world. Because the belief is that the Holy Spirit guides the church. So that is the First Vatican Council. It's the only thing came, that came out of the First Vatican Council, because the Council was disrupted um, and never, it never concluded because of the Franco-Prussian War. While they're in, bishops are in council, the Franco-Prussian War started, and you've got Catholic, you've got, you've got French bishops, you've got German bishops. Suddenly, it wasn't a good idea to have them all together. They all went home to minister to their people. So the First Vatican Council was never formally closed. Pope John XXIII, called the most recent council, and this is a very important council to us. It's happened in my lifetime, I guess not in yours. Um, or some of you, yes, have, but not all of you. <laughs> We're not around in 1963. Um, because the problem facing the church was not a theological question so much as the fact that culture was changing too fast. One of the great things about the church is its tremendous continuity. The faith remains the same that was passed down by Jesus to the apostles, to the apostolic, you know, this continuity of faith. But that means that things, that, that it's very slow to adjust. 
And we see this as, as churches begin to divide and separate over cultural and linguistic issues because the church, in maintaining its continuity of faith, is cumbersome in being flexible. And so the Second Vatican Council was called, um, Pope John XXIII called, uh, called the council, and he expressed it this way. He wants to throw open the windows to allow the Holy Spirit to come in. He wants a new Pentecost in the church. He wants the church to enter into the modern age in a way that can work with the Holy Spirit more fully, more deeply, and be more flexible in dealing with various cultures. And the Second Vatican Council did seek to correct a great many things. Um, one is, is that the Second Vatican Council tried to correct the problem of the division of churches. And uh, like I said, when, you know, with Eastern Church and the Coptic Church split well, off with the Roman Church, there was mutual excommunications and all. And in the Second Vatican Council, the Pope says, all excommunications are canceled. They are our Christians. They are brothers. We want to end this concept that we're different type of Christians than the Greek Orthodox or the Russian Orthodox. We have different liturgies. We speak different languages. We have different cultures, but we all worship the same Jesus. We're all part of the same church. So a Russian Orthodox or a Greek Orthodox are very welcome to be a part of the Catholics. They're all part of the Catholic faith. We see them as Catholic Christians. They don't see themselves as Catholics. They didn't reciprocate. <laughs> but nonetheless, the Catholic Church reached out to them and said, you are, you are part of us. Um, they wanted to correct that. Um, they also tried to reach out to the Protestant churches, and that's an ongoing process. Just, um, just a year ago, maybe two years ago now, the, actually the Lutheran Church and the Catholic Church came out with a joint uh, statement on uh, salvation by faith. They actually have started, this is, cause this is over 50 years now, right? They've actually started putting together Protestant and Catholic theology in a way that we can agree. It's, it's a tedious problem because you're dealing with language and culture more than theology. But to get this thing written down in a fashion that everybody can agree on it. There's a great story in the, in the Second Vatican Council. That's a small story, but I'll tell you because it really sheds a little light on the spirit of this council. And that's the Malabar Church the Martoman Church of Malabar, India. This is a fascinating story. In the first century, St. Thomas went to India to preach the gospel. He established a, uh, a church there, a, a thriving church in India. And uh, unfortunately, because of wars between Europe, Rome and Persia, um, Communication to that part of the world was virtually non-existent from like the second or third century on until the 16th century when some Jesuit uh, missionaries went to India to evangelize and they discovered, oh, there's a church here. <laughs> and so th they meet these, these Christians that, are, that have been there in India for 1,600 years and they said, you know, are you Catholic? And they said, we don't know. <laughs> so, well, they asked, well, what language do you say the Mass in? Do you say the Mass in Latin? And they said, no. We say the Mass in ancient Chaldean. We say in the Mass 
which is actually, it's called Syro-Chaldean. It's a combination of Aramaic, which is the language that Jesus spoke, and Chaldean, which is a, a form of ancient Babylonian. Um, so it's the language that St. Thomas taught them to say the Mass in. And they said, we've been saying it this way since St. Thomas taught us to do it. And they said, well, are you married? Are your priests married? And they said, oh, yeah, our priests are married because in the first century, priests were married. Well, and then the Jesuits say, well, then you're not Catholic. You say that you say the mass in the wrong language. You let your priests get married. Uh, you're not Catholic. <laughs> and the Second Vatican Council fixed that problem. They said, don't be stupid. <laughs> They're Christians. They love Jesus. They say the mass. They're following the, the liturgy that was handed to them by St. Thomas, the apostle. It's a valid mass. So they brought the uh, Martoman Church of Malabar, India, back into the Catholic fold. But that's the spirit of the Second Vatican Council, to bring Christianity together, to make Christianity work in the modern world. And um, there's a beautiful, beautiful thing, and we're still learning how to effect the Second Vatican Council into the church today. So what is the point of all this? To see that the how the Catholic faith is expressed. The beauty of the Catholic faith is that while it carries the continuity of faith from Christ himself through the apostles and through the tradition of, of the fathers of the church and the councils of the church, it is built upon Christ himself but it also needs to have the flexibility to adapt to different languages and cultures. And that's why you see the Catholic Church in the United States is very different from the Catholic Church in Mexico, very different from the Catholic Church in the Philippines, very different from the Catholic Church in China, because the Catholic Church maintains the continuity of faith, but yet has the flexibility to adapt to different languages and cultures which is how the Roman Catholic Church is able to be spread throughout the world. And that is a, is a wonderful and beautiful thing. The scripture describes it this way, that Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. The scripture likes the image of a building, the church being a, a tower, not so much like a church building like this, but, the, but a, a tower or a castle. And that Jesus is the cornerstone. Everything squares to the cornerstone, right? The cornerstone is laid and then everything is set square to the cornerstone. So Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. Squared to Christ are the apostles. And then upon the foundation of Christ and the apostles are the fathers of the church. They begin to carry and build the church up. It expands with the, with, the, with the councils. It expands as the church grows. But it all comes back to the cornerstone of Christ and the foundation of the apostles. And so even when we're dealing with modern questions of theology, modern questions of what does the church believe about this or about that, it always comes back to what did Jesus teach? What did the apostles teach? What has the church believed from the beginning of time? And then how do we take that belief and express it in a way that can reach out to the various cultures and languages of the church? 
So the great thing about the Catholic faith is the tremendous continuity. The difficulty, of course, is that it's kind of slow to respond. But the good thing about that is it doesn't get caught up in a lot of crazy fads, right? But still, it moves forward. It's difficult in this day and age because the language of the church is history and philosophy, right? That's the language the church speaks. And modern man does, is not that interested in history or philosophy. You don't get a lot of history in school. Certainly don't get ancient history in school. You don't get any philosophy in, in, you know, if you go to public school. So it's difficult to, uh, for us to speak to the modern culture. Which is why in this class I've spent, placed so much emphasis on history so that we can see how this all comes about and how it moves forward. And I hope that this has been helpful. Um, yeah, because that's all the information I have. But I hope this has been helpful in understanding how the church presses forward. I've talked for a long time. My wife, Cheryl, always tells me I talk for too long. But this is a lot of material to cover. So let us pause now for questions. Yes. Three questions. Okay. You want a microphone? You probably should have a microphone. Which means I've got to put my mask on too. See, I got a cortisone shot in my knee so I can actually stand up and walk this Sunday. I couldn't do it last week. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't hear her. Is it on? Okay. Yes. Okay. I can hear you now. You talked about councils. Yes. Um, now the magisterium is the group that meets that that is meets for the council, right? That's right. Okay. Who calls the council? Is it always the pope? That's a very good question. The pope, from the from the Catholic perspective, now the pope the pope always calls the council, but does not attend the council. Because he doesn't want to influence, he does his press doesn't want his presence to influence the bishops who are gathering to discuss these issues. In the earlier days, it was the emperor who called the councils, not the pope. Um, but now it's it's the pope that calls calls the councils. Okay, and along those same lines, what's the difference between a synod and a council? <sighs> A, that's a very good question. I hope I can answer this this well. A synod is more localized. There will be synods of bishops that will um, take care of more practical matters within certain geographies. And uh, yeah. Okay. Um, and I love the fact that the Catholic Church, we say our creed every Sunday when we meet. Do other churches do that? When I was a Methodist, we said the creed. Uh, so, it, it, but, but see, Methodists are kind of Anglicans that you know they were Catholic. So, th there, there's there's a liturgical. So, the more liturgical churches, yes, which would be the, the the Methodists, Presbyterians. I'm not sure they used to say the creed, but I think they write their own creed now. Um, and then if you get to the Baptist and places like that, then they, they usually don't say creeds because they're, they're not as liturgical. Because okay. Rusty's church does not mm -hmm. say a creed every Sunday. And they have the Apostles' Creed 
in their missile, but it's never said. Yeah. And I wondered if the word Catholic in there is what turns people off, even though it's a small C, if they misunderstand what they're saying. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and they're like, we're not Catholic. Yeah, I know, and that's, and that's true. I think that is a, a stumbling block for a lot of people. Um, but yeah, the, the, the more liturgical Protestant churches will say a creed, the less liturgicals do not, and they do trip over that Catholic. They, they put the small C there, and they say, well, it just means universal, mm -hmm. but they don't understand that universal is not just mean all over the world. It's, it's, it's the teaching of Christ from the beginning of time. And one of the issues that I had as a Protestant minister is this tremendous theological gap from the New Testament and Martin Luther. It's like all 1,500 years of Christianity were never discussed, that there was this huge gap. And, um, and of course, this is why people like me wind up becoming Catholic, as we start asking that question. Well, I wonder what happened during those 1,500 years. We start reading the fathers of the church, and we go, oh my goodness gracious, there, you know, there's a continuity of faith, and that is in the Catholic Church. Okay, and my last one. Yeah. Technically, should we call ourselves Roman Catholic? Yeah, you can. Yeah, technically, Roman Catholic or Latin Catholic. This is, this is called the Latin Rite, being the way we worship is the, uh, the Mass, as, as it was said in Latin and then translated into English. Again, one of the things that I, that's in my notes I didn't talk about was one of the things that the Church of Rome did, because it's always language and culture that starts to bring division in churches, is they locked Latin as the theological language of the church. So all church documents are written in Latin first and then translated into the various languages. But they're trying to keep the language and culture consistent by making Latin the language. But of course, the reason Latin is our, was our language for Mass is so that everybody could understand it, and then the Second Vatican Council pressed that, that we would be allowed to say you know, Mass in language that people understand. Okay, okay? great questions, excellent. Other questions? Hard questions, didn't you say you had hard questions for them? Cheryl's not here. Cheryl's not here. You got a hard question? You actually, so you answered most of my questions toward the end. Um, and I really liked your explanation of infallibility because that's easily conflated. Um, I was wondering, you mentioned that Egypt and Constantinople fell to Islam. And mm -hmm. so that phrasing... Um, do you mean that they were actually conquered in war, or was that, I know there were a lot of wars, but um, was it really, it has a really negative connotation, I guess. Were they trying to evangelize the Muslim faith, or were they trying to conquer a civilization? Islam, Islam has got a really odd, odd history, but they, basically, but they wanted to take over the world. And most of that was through, uh, through military conquest. And uh, in Constantinople, there was definitely military conquest. They conquered Constantinople and destroyed it. Um, 
But at, uh, in Egypt, it was a little different. So they've got this huge army standing there at the border. And, and in Egypt, they said, we could kill you all or we can just come and, and we'll be friendly. We'll let you guys you know, continue to be Christians and everything will work out fine. We're not, we're not trying to take away your faith. We just want to come and, and be your new governor, new government. So actually, they, Egypt did not put up much of a fight. They, they let them come. Of course, they knew they'd be killed anyway. So, um, but here's what they did in Egypt. They, they, had a, they made a tax. It was a Christian tax. So if you were a Christian, you were allowed to be a Christian. There was freedom of religion, but you had to pay half of your income to the government, whereas if you were a Muslim, you only paid 10% of your income to the government. And within a few generations, Christianity began to dissolve. So there still is a vibrant Coptic church in Egypt, but um, it was severely damaged by that. Um, you know, basically the Muslim took over by making it economically uh, the right thing to do. And there, and there are some odd things. There's, there's, a, there's a sect of Muslims in Syria called the Alawites, and they call themselves Muslims, but they say mass. They celebrate mass. <laughs> so, you know, you can see that at some point in history, they said, well, we'll just call ourselves Muslims so we, they don't kill us or take all our money, but we'll still, we'll still do things our way. So even though drinking alcohol is illegal in Islam, in the Alawite sect of Islam, they celebrate through bread, using bread and wine like we do. Although it's, we wouldn't call it mass now. The fact that it was, probably was mass a few hundred years ago is kind of drifted away and it's just now a different sect of Islam but yeah is the Islam's Muslims are pretty smart in how they took over the world it's really interesting um okay my other question you kind of answered already I guess the second Vatican Council kind of did but now that everybody you know we have translators we have education's back we have all these tools to connect uh, the question was, why not restart or recall a council of all of the Orthodox churches? If doctrine is really the same, there's no need for us to be called something different and to have sects. So I just wondered, I mean, it sounds like they reached out in that council in the 60s. I know there's been different meetings of church leaders in recent years, but is there an ongoing effort to stitch the church back together? There is, there is from the Catholic side of things, less so from the Orthodox. Um, they're, they're so, their culture is so strong, and that's be, you know, because, it's, because the Orthodox churches are not universal churches like the Catholic Church. There's the Greek Orthodox Church. I mean, you're Greek if you're in the Greek Orthodox Church. There's a Russian, you are Russian. So they place so much emphasis on their culture that they're not really interested, so interested in, you know, becoming, in advancing and becoming part of a universal church. I and mean, they really want to stay the way they are. And, you know, and that's okay as long as we can really embrace each other. And like I say, the Catholic Church has reached out to the Greek churches. You guys come to Bass, you're us. You know, you can receive communion and everything. But the Greek says, don't go to the Catholic Church and receive Mass because they're not us. They, you know, they, <laughs> so you've got that going. But they have great food festivals. 
I love going to the Greek festival. Their food is so wonderful. Okay, this is my last one. And this is really kind of a vocabulary question, but I thought about it when you mentioned the Immaculate Conception. Um, so is there a difference between doctrine and dogma? Yeah, I didn't go into that. Um, the Catholic Church has like different levels of um, like dogma is like the stuff that cannot change. And then doctrine is like an application of the dogma. And then below that is the teachings of the church. And the teachings of the church are, are really the, what, because um, the church needs to find new ways to teach its dogma into different cultures. And then below that is the disciplines of the church. And the disciplines of the church change all the time. Um, like celibate priesthood, that's a discipline of the church. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm married. Because I had to get the Pope's permission, but it, that's just a discipline of the church. It's not a dogma of the church, so you you can allow, so you can allow these sorts of things. So like there there are different levels of, of uh, how unchangeable or how or how flexible these things can be. Okay. Um, I just thought of one more too, because you mentioned you asked who calls the councils, but who sets the agenda? Like who? picks the questions or because it doesn't you can't hear it sorry so I was asking who sets the agenda basically for these councils is it because it doesn't sound like they happen with any kind of regular period you know it's not like they meet every hundred years it's just when there's a big question but who that's right picks that yeah whenever there's there's a uh, you know typically it's because of a challenge to the faith um, but, uh, but like the second Vatican council, well, I guess the challenge to the faith was not a theological issue. It was really a cultural issue. The world has changed so much. We need to make some adjustments to the world. Um, but yeah, but they don't call them all the time. And now it's just impossible to get all the bishops together. There's too many. Can't get them all in one room. So there will be, um, elections of to which bishops actually go to a council um but that's uh but then all the other, but then all bishops are allowed to contribute you know like i say the pope can collect the, the information from all the bishops more questions all right wasn't there a time in history where in the Roman Catholic Church, priests were allowed to be married. Oh yes, for most of history, actually. Uh, what well, changed actually, in in the reading for the gospel reading just yesterday, I think, as a reference to Peter's mother-in-law. She's sick, so so Peter, all of the apostles were married. In fact, it was considered a sin not to be married. Um, so, uh, yeah, celibacy was considered sinful in, the, in, uh, in Jewish culture. We talk about influences of other cultures. Gnosticism, that, that, um, that concept that earth is bad, spirit is good, well, it had a lot to do with the drive towards celibacy because being married is too earthy. And so priests are going to be holy, then they need to be celibate. There are also some economic issues. The church has to pay salaries. He's got to pay a priest more money if he's got a wife. Well, they don't pay me any more money. But, uh, <laughs> but there are, um, uh, but you know, there is the uh, the issue of there are a lot there are lots of issues both 
practically and, and, and you know, about wanting celibacy. But that only became a law of the church, I think around the 13th century, that there was the, uh, the law of celibacy of priests. And, um, and obviously it's not, a, it's not a hard and fast rule because there are about 200 married priests in the U.S. right now. And uh, I think that will spread. I think it has to. I think that's one of the adjustments the church needs to make. That's it for questions. All right. Oh, thank you guys so much. For... Okay. Cheryl's got stuff. Okay, so thank you so much for coming. And uh, let's close with uh, a word of praise as we say together, uh, a glory be to the Father, okay? Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you so much for coming tonight and for asking marvelous questions. I hope everybody... Learn something.